I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. Chronicle reporter Matthias Gaffney was in Maui this past weekend. On a recent morning in Kihei, a coastal town on the south side of the island, the scene was eerily peaceful, despite the deadly fire that raged just 30 minutes away days before. The fires had moved quickly, propelled by winds up to nearly 70 miles per hour. Matias arrived on the island late last week to document the experiences of survivors who are among the thousands now displaced and living in evacuation centers near the Kahului Airport. You see cars parked on the side of the road. A lot of them have blankets hanging in their windows. People are sleeping. There's people in Walmart parking lots who have made it their temporary home. More than 2,000 homes, restaurants, and businesses in Lahaina and Kula have burned to the ground. As of late Monday, blazes continued on the island, though firefighters appear to have them under control. The death toll from the disaster in Maui is at 99, already the deadliest wildfire in modern American history. But that number's expected to rise. As recovery efforts pick up, people in West Maui are frustrated. They complain of little help or communication from government officials. Volunteers have had to step in to deliver food, gas, and crucial supplies to those in need. And they're left with agonizing questions. Where were the evacuation orders? Why didn't warning sirens sound? And above all, how could something like this happen? That's something that 30-year-old Lahaina resident Annalise Cochran wonders. Well, in, like, in a place like Maui, you know, we have so many hurricanes and storms yeah. and tidal waves. Why are our power lines not run underground? I just see infrastructure issues. I see safety system issues. Today on Fifth Emission, Chronicle reporter Matthias Gaffney will share some of the reporting he's gathered from the island over the past few days, including stories of frantic escape and determined survival and the ways that residents are stepping in to help one another out. Matthias, welcome back from Maui. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Matthias, you arrived in Maui on Thursday, two days after the fire tore through Lahaina. What did you find when you got there? Yeah, it was still very fresh. Got there Thursday night and immediately started trying to reach survivors. I went to King Cathedral, which is this really large church near the airport. And it was just filled with people. There was outdoor showers set up. There was food just constantly dropped off. There was just cots everywhere with people with their suitcases and belongings that they were able to take with them. In addition, in that same area, there was Home Depot and Walmart, Lowe's, those types of big box stores with their giant parking lots. They were filled with cars that had evacuees in them. Many of them, you could tell they had kind of placed blankets over their windows to try to get block the sun. And some of them were talking with each other and very much still in shock from what happened. We've been reading more of the coverage over the weekend as we start to learn more and more about what happened. And one of the things I've kept hearing about is it's been really hard to navigate the island. People have been complaining about road closures, the difficulty in delivering aid and resources because of those kinds of barriers. How did you navigate all of that as a reporter? Lahaina, 
the entire time I was on there was completely blocked off to most people. They allowed food distribution to come in. They allowed, obviously, emergency responders. They allowed boats on and off to drop off supplies. No one was allowed to get in. Only people were allowed to get out who had been trapped in there. It's not a very big island, and that caused like massive traffic on that main Highway 30 that takes you into Lahaina from southern Maui. And so we happened to have our condo right next to where the checkpoint was, which was, in the end, not very good planning on our part because there was probably a three-mile-long lineup every single day to get to the checkpoint as people were trying to get in and trying to go back to where their houses were. That being said, the rest of the island was very much business as usual as far as driving around and navigating. Definitely in the affected areas, the access was really difficult. Now, I want to understand, you know, because as Californians, we're so accustomed to wildfires, sadly, by now. Maui is the second largest island of Hawaii. And because of its size, it has all these different microclimates, depending on what part of the island you're on. And we know that towns like Paradise in California were very, very dry when fires swept through. What were the conditions of Lahaina? They definitely have microclimates, depending on the topography. So Lahaina is known as one of the dry areas. Like much of Maui, it used to have agriculture out there that has been turned into non-native grasses, which obviously are susceptible for wildfires. So in Lahaina, on the day of the fire, Hurricane Dora passed by on the south of the island. And those hurricane force winds were drawn up north to the island and sucked in by a high-pressure trough. So that combination sent these hurricane-strength winds directly over the Hawaiian Islands. And in the days leading up to the fire, the Honolulu National Weather Service was putting out red flag warnings and high fire risk, low humidity, and high winds, and they warned about potential fire dangers. And that's something that residents were accustomed to, right? And I also understand that that part of the island had also been in a drought. Yeah, it had been dry. The residents I spoke to definitely knew about Hurricane Dora. They were kind of checking their phones. There was a general sense like, wow, we really dodged a bullet. It's going south of us. I spoke to one individual, Aaron McVeigh, who grew up and lived around the Bay Area. He uh, lived up in Kula, which is what they call upcountry on the south end of Maui. And they had fires that same night. As it kind of developed and things started catching, there was all these like crosswinds and like, you know, it got really close. We packed up all of our trucks with any essentials, clothing, you know, I got my cat carriers ready to go. And he, along with his neighbors, battled them to save his house. Some kids came out, some neighborhood kids, and they were just grabbing any hoses they could find from the homes that evacuated. And we were just tying hoses together. Everyone's out spraying, doing everything they could. And mm-hmm. we, we kind of banded together and we said, look, we know when we have to leave. Like, if that house goes right there, we're out of here. Matias, it sounds like this fire and the one in Lahaina moved very fast, as it did in California's Paradise Fire, which was the deadliest modern wildfire until this one in Maui. What did residents share with you about how much time they had to react and leave? Did they receive any warnings? It happened very quickly. You're right. There was a lot of parallels to Paradise. 
with lack of warning and how quickly it moved. I spoke to one individual named Zero, and his house may have been one of the first ones to burn down. He was very close to where the origin of the uh, Lahaina fire started. The wind started blowing the embers and the smoke directly into his house. And as he quickly got his keys in his wallet, that was all he had time to grab. He jumped into his car and headed towards the water. And in his rearview mirror, he saw flames on his house. This is a look of a guy whose house just burned down. The smoke is coming down this mountain so fast. There's no way this house lasted. So I got a pair of dirty Dickies shorts, stained up t-shirt, a ball cap, and I don't know, maybe $200 in my pocket. But I'm alive. On the northern end of Lahaina, I spoke to a resident named Doris who owned a townhome and she saw the smoke she jumped into her truck with her dog, Winston, and they drove off. She eventually parked in a Safeway parking lot. This is probably 10 minutes, she said, after she evacuated her townhome. She looked back and she saw flames already burning in her complex. And I spoke to another woman named Annalise who lived just off of Front Street, which is the main drag where a lot of tourists go. And she saw the fire across a vacant parking lot her apartment, and went back in, packed a to-go bag, came back down, and the fire had jumped. The fire had come halfway across the parking lot already, so it had traveled, you know, basically that whole block. In the seconds, I had run inside and grabbed a couple of things. All of them told me they had zero warning about an alert, about a text message, a phone call, a TV warning, of course, the power and cell coverage were out because of all the high winds, dropping power lines and cutting connections. None of them said they saw a single firefighter in the area. And then they all also said that there's these tsunami sirens. They go off the first day of every month as a drill. The locals joke that that's like the warning to pay rent because it happens every first of the month. And those never were activated. That was a big complaint of theirs. They said they were just totally caught off guard. Annalise Cochran escaped Maui's wildfire by jumping into the ocean where she stayed for hours. Matias shares her story after a quick break. You're listening to Fifth and Mission. You can support the newsroom that creates this podcast by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Matias Gaffney, among the different stories you reported in Maui this past weekend was this harrowing account from Annalise Cochran. Before the break, you described how she had narrowly escaped the fire by car, and eventually she survived by clinging onto a rock wall in the ocean for seven hours. How did she and her neighbors end up in the ocean, as many others did? Yes, she took off in her car, immediately got caught in gridlock, along Front Street. So I took off in my car and I was driving and it was, I mean, pitch black. I turned on my headlights, you couldn't see a single thing. I was driving 100% blind, just on muscle memory of like, I know my street's about this long, I know I turned somewhere about here. People were abandoning their cars, which created even more gridlock. So she stayed in there. As she was doing that, there was 
tourists, young people, old people, pets passing by her along Front Street, all holding clothing to their mouths, trying to avoid the thick black smoke that was cascading down First Front Street. And at one point, some stranger knocked on her door and she let him in. And then he was pretty panicky and said he's going to take off and run for it. And I told him, I was like, you, you may do whatever you want to do. I am not here to hold you hostage. You can go and run if you want. I saw him run forward basically like directly into a fire. He ran down the street, came back, said there was fire blocking the way, came in her car again, and then again decided to leave and took off a different route. And she never saw him again. And she waited as long as she could in her car. And then eventually she joined her two neighbors and they went behind this rock wall. And so they basically huddled there along these sharp, jagged lava rock and used it as a shield against the fire as it tore into the town. They were there for seven hours. They would move around up and down the rock wall to try to get away from the hot spots. They would go into the water to cool down. As they got colder, they'd actually scramble up the wall to warm up with the the fire. She would help people towel off their heads and dipping stuff in water, clothing in water to towel off their heads as they got hot. Unfortunately, Freeman, her neighbor, who was 86 years old and had gout, he could not navigate this rock wall. It was incredibly slippery and treacherous. And he was sitting at the top for most of the time. We were talking to Freeman and we kept expressing that we don't want to leave you. We don't want to leave you. And he encouraged us to, um, to move as we needed to. Mm-hmm. And we promised him that we would never go far throughout the whole mm-hmm. night. We would always be, you know, really, really close. And I don't think we ever went much more than 25, 30 feet away from him. And eventually, sadly, he died up atop the rock wall there. And eventually, after seven hours, they were rescued. A fire truck came in and they took some of the rock wall evacuees out while others went out on like surfboards and other ways. I mean, Matthias, it's it's kind of hard to wrap your head around what you just described here, Annalise and others having to survive in this way in the ocean, holding on to this jagged rock wall. As she shared this story with you, what kind of stands out to you? Yeah, I mean, it was just incredibly inspiring to hear her tell the story. Her friend Edna, her neighbor, was with her the whole time, leaning on each other physically and mentally during this time that they're on the rock wall. At one point, the smoke was so thick and they were choking it down for so long that their voices were going away and it got more and more painful to talk. So they told each other, let's stop talking. Let's just be with each other and hold each other's hands. At one point, once all the buildings were burned down, all these lines and lines of cars that were right above them on the rock wall on the other side started exploding. When the, the cars started to explode, I think that's when it got really dire. Because before it was just really uncomfortable. You're, you're burning, it's smoky, you can't see well, you're scared. But the cars started exploding and you know, with everything, the sound of it's horrifying. Each time they would feel the pulse of the explosion and a massive heat wave would hit them. They were worried it would knock over the rock wall and they'd get covered in rocks. She knew there were sharks in the water. It's just so much that she had to endure. Talking to her was really inspiring. And just in describing the way that Annalise and her neighbor Edna helped 
each other through this ordeal. It's sort of emblematic of the ways that people sort of leaned on each other in order to survive this tragedy. And we can see that in grassroots efforts. You know, people have been helping each other out to house each other, find residents who were unaccounted for, bring aid. Tell me, what did you see in your time there? How has the island come together in the wake of everything? In Hawaii, they call it kuleana, or their responsibility to help each other. So I can't even tell you how much I saw that. It was, it was, everything was very grassroots. A lot of them were upset, frankly, with the local government and their handling of the fire itself and the aftermath as well. So they were taking it upon themselves to get donations to deliver them. When I was up in Kula, I went with someone to the Maui Brewing Company. They were gathering donations to deliver to Lahaina. When I was there, there was a massive amount of diapers and dog food and all getting piled into trucks near the condo where my photographer, Stephen Lamb, and I, we were um, staying in a condo nearby there. There was a whole separate operation there where people would drive in all sorts of goods and then they would tr- they would load them onto the boats there, all the fishing charters and whale watching boats. They all turned into makeshift deliverers of aid. So it was just tremendous amount. The aloha spirit, uh, as they say, was alive and well. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that there's anger and frustration from residents. What gaps in emergency responses were they trying to fill that were left by the government? A lot of the locals were saying there's just a lot of red tape that is slowing getting the donations to the people who need it, slow for... Um, getting people housed in Lahaina itself. They've created little makeshift operation zones where they bring in these goods um, from boat or from car. There's always just anger that there's very limited access for people to get back in and they want to know if their house survived. They want to know if their studio survived. They want to know if their bars exist anymore. And so that curiosity um, is creating these long lines at these checkpoints, and they're getting told that they can't go in yet because they're searching for bodies still. So that's very frustrating. Now, you've seen communities in California like Paradise and Santa Rosa begin their recoveries after such traumatic events. What's ahead for the people of Lahaina and Maui? What kind of unique challenges do you think they'll face in the coming months? Putting the trauma itself aside and and those mental health challenges that I think survivors will will go through inevitably, there's just real practical um, challenges that you get when you have a disaster of this magnitude on an isolated island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You know, there's just an entire town that's rubble now. Where are you going to take all of that debris? This is where it differs a little bit from Paradise or from some of the other California wildfires. They're so isolated. Are they going to barge all of that debris to another Hawaiian island? Are you going to barge that all the way across the Pacific Ocean to the mainland? You can see the magnitude of the cleanup effort and how long it could possibly take. And then let's say once you do get it clean, building there getting supplies out to Hawaii. Again, the isolation is going to create these unique challenges. This was a massive tourist area. And are people going to go elsewhere? Are the workers and service industry and locals, are they going to move elsewhere because they need jobs, they need houses, and they can't wait till Lahaina is rebuilt? 
You know, as we're talking today, the death toll in Maui is nearing 100, and it's just really hard to digest the scale of a disaster like this and all this profound loss. Just from talking to people, how are how are their spirits? How are they coping? Obviously, people are profoundly sad, and there's a lot of loss. And frankly, there's not a lot of answers right now. A lot of people may know that their relatives died, but they haven't been able to put them to rest. They haven't gotten their remains back. Others, they just know they're missing and they haven't gotten conclusions. So especially when you visit these massive evacuation centers, like the one at War Memorial, this giant complex in kind of central Maui, there's just thousands of people there. And I think when I spoke to Annalise there, she was relaying this this story that really stood out to me, and there was a an elder who kind of stood up in the middle of the gymnasium there. They were kind of lamenting the fact that uh, the famous banyan tree in Lahaina may not survive. It's this massive tree that's been there for 150 years, right in the center of Lahaina, and it's uh, surrounds uh, the old historic courthouse, and it's charred. And they're all worried that it's not going to survive, and so. The elder tells everyone, yes, the branches are all scarred and worn down, but this is where the tree is. And she points to the gymnasium. And that kind of symbolized to me the spirit that the community was feeling that all this material stuff that burned down obviously is incredibly tragic and a huge loss. But um, the spirit of the Hawaiian people um, is going to remain. Well, Matthias, thank you for bringing us stories from the front lines of this terrible event. I appreciate it so much. Sure. Thanks for having me. Matthias Gaffney is an investigative reporter at The Chronicle. Find his and the rest of the newsroom's coverage of the Maui wildfire online at sfchronicle.com and on The Chronicle app. The audio you heard in today's episode was collected by Matthias and photographer Stephen Lamb. Thanks to Gary Baca for the edits, to Sarah Feldberg and Keith Manconi for the production help. And thank you for listening.